Good morning to you and welcome to the fifth and the final message in our uh, series of studies these last five weeks on family matters. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 18 uh, in it. Most of these verses, if I dare say all of them, will be on the screen. But in Acts 18, we're going to meet a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, who happen to also be one of my very favorite couples uh, in the Bible. The title of the message is Marriage, a Tool for Effective Ministry. And I stole those words from a comment that I heard or read years ago from Chuck Swindoll uh, when he made this comment, marriage is one of God's greatest tools for ministry. Now, Acts 18 is the first of six passages in the scriptures that refer to Aquila and Priscilla. Now, here's a map just to give you a little bit of idea where we're going to be traveling today, and we're going to start there with, with uh, Rome. And by the way, Pastor Rob and I, Lord willing, a year from next month in October, we're going to be leading a uh, tour over to these various sites that we're going to be looking at right here and uh, do some team teaching all the way. Uh, the tour is all set. We'll have more to say about it uh, later, but we're going to start with four days and four nights. Uh, in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding cities there in Asia Minor, uh, churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3 when he said, write to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea, uh, etc. Also up to where Paul planted other churches, uh, up in Colossae, up in Hierapolis, and then, of course, uh, the key city, which is the city of uh, Ephesus. Then we're going to get on a ship and take a three-day cruise on the lovely Mediterranean in the most beautiful month of the year over there in October. And uh, we're going to travel across the sea and we're going to go to Athens uh, and to Ca uh, Corinth, but we're going to stop in the Isle of Patmos first. So we'll stop in the Isle of Patmos. That's where John, the Apostle John, was exiled and then he wrote the book of Revelation. And then we'll visit a few other islands where Paul ministered and also islands where ladies love to get off and shop. And then we're going to arrive over in Corinth and uh, spend a day there and in Athens and uh, visit these uh, church sites here too. Uh, in all my travels, I think I can say that Ephesus and uh, Corinth are probably the most two uh, excavated cities of uh, of the New Testament book of Acts time. So uh, they're absolutely fascinating and Lord willing, it should be a great time. So today we're going to begin our journey in uh, the city of Corinth, as you see on the map. Uh, Acts 18, 1 to 3 is where we see Aquila and Priscilla uh, meeting the apostle Paul. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now that introduces us to what I call simply their sovereign encounter. That is the encounter of Aquila and Priscilla, and then bringing the Apostle Paul uh, into their lives. This is an amazing couple, and one of the things that's so very special to me about them is they're what we would call in today's terminology, laymen. That is, they're not 
not an apostle, they're not a prophet, uh, they're not a, uh, a person who quote-unquote is in full-time Christian ministry. They're laymen, uh, but they're great servants uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were people of hands, heart, and home totally given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know for certain when they became believers in the Lord Jesus. You'll notice we read that Aquila is referred to as a Jew. It doesn't even say a believing Jew. It doesn't say a Jew who believes. So I assumed uh, he was not a Christian yet. A Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. We don't know if she was Jewish. We don't know a whole lot about that background. But anyway, we do know for certain, according to the text, that the emperor in Rome at this time was a man by the name of Claudius. And what was happening in Rome in 52 AD is that a lot of Jewish people were coming to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah and King. As a result, the Jews started riots in the city and causing all kinds of problems, persecuting the Christians and even more particular, the Jewish Christians. So uh, nothing new with riots in the city in our day and age, is there? But it's, uh, it's kind of interesting the way Claudius decided to handle these uprisings, which he didn't like, is that rather than just try to deal with the troublemakers, he just said, well, get rid of all the Jews, and that'll solve the problem since they're the ones causing the disturbance. So he made every Jew leave the city of Rome. Now, Two of those people, or one couple, was Aquila and uh, Priscilla, and so they migrated, left Rome, and migrated down to the city of Corinth that we just read about. Well, no sooner had Aquila and Priscilla gotten there than they had to make a living, so they established what was called a tent-making business that we don't have time to develop uh, for you, and uh, then they got a home established in Corinth, and it wasn't long before another tent-maker uh, came to the city and uh, came to the city of Corinth. Uh, this other tent maker had been up in Athens. Well, you say Athens back in biblical times, it was the intellectual capital of the world. If you want to talk about the PhDs of the world, uh, the brilliant people, those were the people up in Athens. And he was up there, held evangelistic meetings there at Mars Hill, the Acropolis, places Lord willing we're going to visit next October. And then he left and went about 50 miles south to the city of Corinth. If Athens was the intellectual capital of the world, and it was, Corinth was the sensual capital of the world. In fact, if you called a woman a Corinthian woman, that was a slur. That was saying you're a prostitute, you're an immoral person. And so Corinth, the central capital, Athens, the intellectual capital, but all of them needed the gospel. And of course, that tent maker I'm speaking of right now, who was in Athens and came to Corinth, was none other than the apostle Paul uh, himself. And so under God's sovereignty then, uh, Paul, as he would normally do, he'd go into a city, and remember he said to Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God of salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the apostle Paul would go first to the local synagogues, and he would present Christ from the Old Testament as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah. And then he would go out into the marketplaces, and there he would preach as well. But he had, if he was determined that 
then by the Spirit of God that he would stay there uh, for a period of time. Then he would have to find work because he wasn't, quote unquote, supported otherwise. And so Paul himself was a tent maker. So it's logical when he went down the marketplace, he'd go to a tent making shop in order to find employment. And that's where this sovereign encounter uh, began. By the way, we use the term today, if you're familiar with uh, uh, missions at all, uh, you're not going to study about missions very long before you see the word tent maker. And it's just a word that goes back to this time here where people may go, say, to China and teach in a major university. I've got a dear friend of mine, he teaches in a major city in Turkey. He's a university professor with a PhD, but his real reason for being there is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're earning your own keep uh, financially, but you're really, your purpose and calling in life is to make disciples for the, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here this instantaneous friendship, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla was established, and then we're going to see it gets to be cultivated. Now, you notice in the text it said, he stayed with them. That means now he's living with them. He stayed with them and worked for them, for they were tent makers by trade. How long do you think it would take if Paul were living in your home before maybe he shared the gospel with you, okay? Wouldn't take very long, probably, would it? And it is my uh, conjecture, my understanding, and I say this with also a degree of uncertainty to it because we simply, it doesn't say, so we don't know, so we have to be careful. But I am kind of assuming during this time, Paul led Aquila and Priscilla to faith in Christ, and that was the beginning of a marriage that now becomes a tool for effective ministry. Now let's move on from the sovereign encounter and we go to what I call their scriptural encouragement. We're still in the book of Acts. And uh, if you read, if you take time to read Acts uh, chapter 18, verses 4 to 17, you would find there that Paul establishes the church in Corinth. There's a lot of opposition. Why? For every advancement of the gospel, mark it down. For every advancement of the gospel, there is always a corresponding resistance from the enemy. That's true wherever the gospel goes. It was true in Corinth. Now, in verse 11, the apostle Paul says, stayed in Corinth for 18 months and taught the word of God. How do we know that? Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, again, I'm conjecturing a bit, but I have a feeling that two of his very best Bible students and disciples were none other than Aquila and Priscilla. Well, he's staying there 18 months. And by the way, uh, in all these things, sometimes we don't know how long exactly he was in one place or another, but sometimes it spells it out right here. He's there 18 months. Well, in verse 18, we see the apostle Paul leaves Corinth. And at this point, he leaves, uh, takes a, a Aquila and Priscilla with him, and he sails across the Aegean Sea over to the city of Ephesus that we saw earlier. At this point, Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he goes on to Jerusalem, visits the saints there, does a little follow-up on some of the churches up in Phrygia and, and Galatia. But meanwhile, Aquila and Priscilla, who now have been taught by Paul, remain in Ephesus. So while they're in Ephesus, they hear about uh, something going on down at the synagogue, and they have gone there as well. And they realize the town is, a, is, is talking about this uh, quite brilliant preacher by the name of Apollos. 
And so he was a man who was very eloquent and also had great knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. But as Aquila and Priscilla would sit there and listen to Apollos, they said, hmm, there's something deficient in his teaching ministry. Let me pick it up in verses 24 to 26 with you of Acts 18. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's down in northern Egypt, a native of Alexandria, he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. By the way, just as a note, in the way of the Lord is an Old Testament terminology. It means you're very familiar with the Old Testament teachings, the laws, the holiness of God, etc. Way of the Lord is always refers to the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew, here's the key, he knew only the baptism of John. John who? John the Baptist. So he's come that far, and he's been brought to repentance, and John the Baptist points out the Lamb of God that takes the sin of the world, but it kind of ends right there. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What was what was Apollos deficient in? He was deficient in the crucial message of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension, the promise of the second coming, Acts 2, the birthday of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I assume those are now the truths that Aquila and Priscilla uh, impart to this man, uh, Apollos. Now, I love those words where it says they took him aside. That shows such wisdom and spiritual discernment and a spirit of humility that Aquila and Priscilla demonstrated. Personal story. 49 years ago, I was a 29-year-old young senior pastor. Wonderful church. And uh, after the Sunday morning service, uh, one of the aged saints, you know, every church has an Apostle Paul, right? It's kind of the aged person that, you know, just he's uh, just admired by everyone and knows the word. So this Apostle Paul at that church where I was pastoring, he said, uh, Pastor, can I talk to you a few minutes uh, alone in your study? I said, well, certainly. And um, so he came in and uh, proceeded to really give me, I was going to say a stern rebuke. It was a straightforward rebuke, but it was also done with gentleness meekness and great humility of spirit now that was 49 years ago and as i listened to him i can still i know right where i was i know the exact words he spoke 49 years later and as he spoke to me i knew two things he was right i was wrong i knew that and i thanked him i thanked him for it and you know that little that uh, important admonition Here's 49 years later, I've never forgotten it. It was so helpful. But the wisdom of it, I think, was he didn't accost me out in front of all the people in the foyer after the service. His purpose wasn't to embarrass me. His purpose was what? To help me as a senior saint and a young pastor. And when I look at this passage like this, I see how practical it is when Priscilla, hey, listen, may I just say as a side note, it's not in my notes, by the way, that's always dangerous because it adds time to the sermon, too. Do. Don't you ever do that. 
out in the public to Pastor Rob after a message. If you have something to say to him, you'd be man, woman enough to either call him or just say, can I come and see you? Okay? You don't embarrass people. I don't think people would do that normally here, but I guarantee you there are probably some, though I don't know that for certain. They took him aside. I'm so impressed with them. But then I don't know if I'm more impressed with them or Apollos. Apollos was, as we saw, becoming very famous. Everyone looked at him and said, wow, does he know the Old Testament scriptures? What? We would call him today a great orator. I always, I, I always remember Stephen Olford. He was a great orator, pastor of Calvary Baptist 50 years ago in New York City. And I remember when I had him at the college when I was president down at Washington, I had him come speak in, in some meetings. And I remember just sitting there and all. And, say, and he had a British accent. That never hurt you in America, right? But he was an orator. And I used to sit there, as dumb, but I'd sit there and just stand in awe and say, I wish I could be a great orator. Uh, and that's what Apollos was. Now this lay couple come to him. And they instruct him in the way of the Lord more thoroughly. Who had the greater humility, Apollos to receive the instruction or the way that Aquila and Priscilla gave it? I think they both had great spirits of humility. And with that, God did a great work in, their, in the heart and life of, of Apollos. So sometimes we who are teachers of the word um, maybe don't have as much spirit of humility uh, that we should when others might have something that is going to help us improve. I'm glad I did at least 20, 49 years ago. I'm glad I did because it, it, it helped me then. By the way, Apollos then went on. And let me just say one other word. There's some of you I know are new today. I've just met you. And I, I hope you'll come back next Sunday because Pastor Rob is one phenomenal Bible teacher. He is so, we are so blessed to have Pastor Rob. And to have a young man with such a brilliant mind but such a spiritual heart. But you know what I love about Pastor Rob more than anything else? Is his spirit of humility. For a young man who's brilliant, and I mean brilliant, and capable, and teaches the word so well, underneath is that beautiful spirit of humility, and we are glad. Well, getting back to Apollos, he went to Corinth then with letters of commendation uh, from the church leaders in Ephesus, and I probably got you all confused with the cities now. But he had a most effective ministry in Corinth. How do I knew that? Remember when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 3, he's talking about the division. He says, some of you say, well, I'm in the Apostle Paul's club. Others say, I'm in Cephas's club. And some were what? In Apollos' club. So he already had just people gravitating to him, even though Paul had been there uh, as well. And then Paul would write 1 Corinthians and correct that error. Moving quickly to point number three, let's move from the sovereign encounter and scriptural encouragement to the spiritual expansion. Just love this. Let me mention just a couple of things here. According to Acts 19.1, notice what it says. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Mary had gone there, Paul passed throughout the inland country and he came back to Ephesus. Now, we know that Paul stayed in Ephesus at the minimum two years and uh, most even say three or beyond years. So let's just say, to be accurate, he was there at least two to three years, we know for certain. And so while he was there in Ephesus, I'm assuming that's where 
Uh, he established the uh, Bible college there because it went uh, uh, morning through the day in the teaching and making disciples. But while he was at Ephesus at this time, he wrote a very important letter, and I've already referred to it. It was what you and I have in our Bibles called 1 Corinthians. Now stay with me. I know we're getting in the weeds a little bit, but if you just stay with me, I want you to remember that map. So here he is. He's back in Ephesus, and God puts on his heart to write the letter because why? In 1 Corinthians, if you read that, Paul got two letters. One was from the house of Chloe, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. They said, we got a lot of problems here, Paul. Help us. What do we do? Then in chapter 7, verse 1, he said, now concerning the things about which you wrote me, that is the church of Corinth. So he's addressing two sets of questions. That's why we have 1 Corinthians in our Bible today is that he's answering the problems he had back then, same problem we have in our churches today. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, and in the 1 Corinthians letter, stay with me now, it's going to get easier, I promise. In 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he says this, the churches of Asia, that would be Ephesus, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Now notice the next words. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All right, time to move on, Paul. So now, that's not all. Paul left Ephesus, and now he goes back to Greece after he sent the letter to Corinth. He's got a follow-up now with a visit. And so he now goes to Corinth. And by this time, one more little tidbit, Claudius had died in Rome. You say, who in the world's Claudius? Remember, he's the emperor. I told all the Jews that he's died. Now that order he gave is rescinded. Jews can now come back to Rome. Guess who goes back to Rome? Aquila and Priscilla. So they go back to their home city, their hometown, their home country, and they go back to Rome. Now what does Paul do here in Corinth? Well, he writes another inspired book of the Bible. We saw that he wrote from Ephesus. He wrote 1 Corinthians. Now he's in Corinth. And he writes what you and I know as the book of Romans, okay, the great theological book. Now, here's where I want to point out to you. Now, remember, Quill and Priscilla now have been back to Rome for uh, some time. He says in ver uh, verses 3 to 5, Greet Prisca and Aquil, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Notice these words. Here we are. Greet also the church where? In their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And I look at those verses, and I say, isn't that incredible? Think of this couple. They're not apostles, they're not prophets, not pastors. They're a lay couple. They're like you. They're like you. You work for a living, you give of your time, you volunteer, you give graciously, you come to church, you serve the Lord. That's Aquila and Priscilla. They encouraged Paul Paul never forgot him. They took a great Old Testament teacher aside. They instructed him in the finished work of Christ, the establishment of the church. Apollos then becomes one of the great orators of the church. Then they established two churches. They plant two churches because they didn't have church buildings back then. They met in the homes. And they planted two churches in their home, one in Ephesus, the leading city, the New York City of America is what it would be, comparable. And then the other city was in Rome, the capital of the whole Roman Empire, 
Think of the influence. How's that for spiritual expansion and spiritual legacy? Their home was a launching pad for what? Evangelism and discipleship. You know, as I get older and older, and you know your years are short, you want your home to be a base, a spiritual haven where Christians, brothers and sisters, need encouragement, need discipled, need pastoral care. And then I want my home to be a launching pad for those who haven't found their way yet to the gospel to Christ. I have no greater joy than inviting people, Miro and I, into our home and to share the gospel and see them come to Christ. See battle-weary brothers, sisters, who are down and out, and to see them get up. Come on, we can do this together. That's what we want our homes to be. Use your home for evangelism and disciples, and I know so many of you do. I've been part of it with you. Okay, we've done some pretty heavy stuff. Traced your mind a little bit. You're probably getting weary, so relax. Time for an illustration. So, time for the illustration of the football season should begin shortly. Now, normally, as you know, thousands are early to the stadium, and they have what they call a tailgate party. And then they go into the stadium for the football game with 65,000 other people. I liken the tailgate party to what we call small groups today. And in our church, they're called the Thrive Group Ministries. That's where we develop intimate friendships and we grow in the Lord together. Maybe God will lead some of you to open your home. Maybe to establish your home as a center for encouragement and discipleship. Even if you don't teach or you don't feel qualified, you say, God hasn't called me to teach. I don't feel competent to lead. That's all right. Maybe you open your home and you, we have somebody come alongside who is gifted in teaching. And he comes and you team up. We're going to be doing that this year as well in just a couple of weeks. And so your home can be a place where ministry is taking place. I pray above all that you will, if you've never done it, join a Thrive Group. I promise you, you'll be glad. Miro and I were part of it when we were down in Hilton. I was going to say stuck in Hilton Head Island. Who doesn't want to be stuck in Hilton Head Island in March, April, May, and June? But we couldn't get out of there because of COVID. And we were part of one of these Thrive Groups that Stu and Jonna uh, were leading online. And, you know, we just couldn't wait. Honestly, we couldn't wait for that meeting. It was so encouraging. Men and women, I think there were about 13 of us, just sharing their hearts and encouraging. It, you're just always lifted and, and, and you just felt... Uh, like God had spoken to your heart. Stu and John have led our Thrive Ministry for quite a few years, and they've handed the torch to Lars and Laura Jensen, who are an incredibly gifted and uh, godly couple, and they're ready to encourage you uh, in this matter with uh, joining a Thrive group as well. But let me remind you, Thrive group were tailgating at an NFL football game. Tailgating is just part of something that's larger. I mean, you don't just go to tailgate and eat a few burgers. You can do that in your home or whatever. No, you go there and you have the fellowship to eating. Then when it's 
getting kickoff time, you go into the stadium. That's the purpose. Tailgating, you begin, but then you go into the stadium and uh, uh, hopefully you're going to celebrate a victory in the stadium of your home team. And the stadium in this analogy that I am using here is the local church. It's this building here. The Thrive groups are the small groups, the tailgating out in the, in the homes, but then we come together into the stadium. And that's when we celebrate the victory. The victory of what? the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. So we come, we sing, we sit under the word, we fellowship, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get back to that uh, in, a, in a shorter time than some are thinking, but we'll just have to wait and to see. The, the point is this. In this time of COVID-19, and I especially am addressing those of you watching online, it can get pretty easy just to stay away out of the stadium okay so let me just address this for a moment and take just a little side trip here for about three minutes if you are an aged person or you have some kind of physical health challenge and if for any reason your medical personnel have encouraged you not to be part of a group may i say emphatically we support that 100 percent no one is badgering you. No one is saying you ought to come back. If your health is a challenge, you need to stay where you are. But I'm addressing some of you who could easily come back, uh, whether in here or out uh, with the children, out in the, uh, in the uh, gymnasium, the fellowship hall, because it's, I have a feeling that some people are getting kind of comfortable uh, getting up in the morning, and not shaving, getting dressed, going in your shorts, sitting out there in your easy boy chair, getting an egg McMuffin in one hand and your cup of coffee in the other hand, and you turn the TV on. And you know what? We saw the same thing when we were in Hilton Head. It was kind of comfortable. You know, I'm looking out the balcony, watching the service, egg McMuffin, coffee, whatever. It's just pretty comfortable. Be careful is all I'm saying to you. Other thing, it's easy to be self-centered rather than others-focused, kind of enjoying your privacy, enjoying your time right there in your own little uh, home. But remember, when Jesus is the vine and he is, he's the source of all life, of all the branches who are believers. Did you ever see a vine with branches that weren't intertwined? They're all intertwined. That's you and me. That's the body of Christ. That's the, the way the Lord would teach us uh, how we grow to love one another and how we're intertwined and knit together in love. And we miss the body. Even if it takes me 10 minutes to recognize you behind your mask, it's still nice once I recognize you to see those sparkling eyes and we talk through our eyes. That's kind of a nice thing, you see. But we miss people when they're not here. Another thing is just wrong priorities. Um, Get up in the morning on the beautiful Cape, get your little kids, get the children, pack up, get the lunch ready, and go off to the beach. Say, yeah, we'll watch the video later tonight. Later on comes on tonight, you put the kids to bed, you get up, and maybe you remember to watch and maybe something else takes priority. What kind of message are you sending your family? Parents, what kind of message are you sending the children? What is important or what's not important? What's a priority and what is not a priority? So we need to be very careful. 
So my challenge to those of you who can, get inside the stadium. Get back to the stadium. If this is your home church, we miss you. We want you back. If it's another home church, get back to that church. I guarantee you, they miss you. Let me say one other thing here. Empty chairs have never blessed my heart once. Never. Empty chairs never respond to the gospel. Empty chairs are never encouraged. They're just stuff. And so we want chairs that have flesh and blood in them that we can grow together in the Lord. Okay, spiritual endearment. We're just, we're, we're, we're getting done, honest. We'll be finished within 45 minutes. Okay, <laughs> number four is spiritual endearment. This is the fourth thing, okay, that we want to see. Now here in 2 Timothy 4.19, Paul's coming to the end of his life. Now he's been in prison before, that's uh, in Rome. That's when he wrote uh, books like Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, uh, etc. And, and now he was released. Now he's back in prison the second He's not under house arrest this time. He's in prison, the maritime prison, as we know, over in the city of Rome. He knows he's going to be executed shortly. Not sure of the exact day. Time of his life is just about over. He'll be beheaded. He'll be decapitated uh, by the cruel Roman uh, government. Uh, so it's been now 16 years uh, since he first went to Corinth and met Aquila and Priscilla, who have returned now back to Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus now has a new pastor. They had Paul. They had the Apostle John. Imagine having a history like that. And now they have a pastor by the name of Timothy, Paul's son, in the faith. Listen to what he says at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4.19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus and then Cetra. The thing I'm pointing out is this. If you're coming to the end of your life, it could be a terminal disease, whatever it is, but you know life, you're not going to be along too many days. Who do you want to be with? Who do you want at your bedside? Who do you want in this day and age on uh, FaceTiming? Who do you want to talk to on the phone? You're pretty particular. You want those dearest to you. You want your family. You want your closest intimate friends. Paul's coming to the end of his life. It's been 16 years since he first met this couple. Who does he greet at the end of his life? Priscilla and Aquila. By the way, if you look at the six references to this couple, you'll note that four out of six references put Priscilla's name first. Now you say, so what? Well, the so what is this, that in the Greek language, sometimes when you list names, you list them, the, the order in which they're listed gives a message. For instance, when you have uh, Paul converted and you have Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, after Paul takes the leadership, now you read it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Now, we don't know why, why Priscilla's name was listed early. We don't know for certain uh, or listed first. Some say she was a woman of nobility, and that would be a reason you might do it. Others say she, maybe she's a little more visible. We know people like that. The man's an introvert. He kind of does his thing. The woman's the extrovert. She just likes being with people and encouraging everyone around. We don't know. Uh, but the interesting thing is, as I thought about that, I thought also uh, about how sometimes the woman might have a more visible uh, ministry to people. Now, when I visited with Pastor 
on Tuesday after he got back from vacation. He says, I can relate to that. He says, I do fireside chats, and the response is pretty good. Then Katie does them, and the thing skyrockets, absolutely goes off the scene. Uh, so let me make a comment or two about this in all matter of seriousness. This matter of roles, different roles and roles of women in the church and in, at the home. Two things, uh, three words might help us understand the various views concerning uh, men and women. The first one is chauvinism. Chauvinism is what you and I would call the sinful tendency to demean women, treating them as less valuable than men, and to dominate harshly over women in the name of men's headship. I hope every one of us here could agree 100%. That is not only wrong, it's sinful. We reject that entirely. Now, a little bit of that spirit was in the church for a long time. Women were relegated to the nursery and to baking cookies out there. All right? And so a lot's happened in 50 years. But as is often the case, when you go away from one extreme like chauvinism, to make sure you don't fall into that error again, what happens? You go to another extreme, and in this case, it's where I'm putting up egalitarianism. So egalitarianism simply says this. It says there is no distinction in the roles uh, that men and women possess, whether in the home or in the church. And sometimes even Christian leaders with a rising culture that is antithetical to the word of God, they sometimes, in order not to offend the people of the rising culture, they compromise the teachings of the word of God in order that they'll be more acceptable to the people. And it's kind of what happened in Corinth, where Corinth uh, more uh, Corinthianized the church than the church Christianized the city of Corinth. And so we got to be very careful there, and our leaders are, and we thank God for it. So the third word in the balance is complementarianism, the biblical view, as I understand it. And this view that says that men and women are created equal in the image of God. They are equal in value and personhood, but we are distinct from one another as a man and as a woman. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to understand that. We're different. And God created it that way when he created it. And so that we complement, as we go back to the first sermon, that God created a helpmeet for Adam called Eve. And she corresponded to him in every way. She complemented him. Now, this is the view most compatible, as I understand it, with biblical teaching. Men like David, Jeremiah, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, whom we all respect, uh, agree with that too. Now, we want to encourage, we want to empower both men and women to be all that God has called them to be, to be functioning in their God-given roles and spiritual givenness for the sake of kingdom, God's kingdom and glory. Two thoughts more right here, quickly. First of all, in the home. We have seen through these studies on family matters going through five different couples in the Word of God. We have seen that this role that God has put in complementarianism was given before sin entered the world. So it wasn't like sin entered and then God changed. No, it was back when Adam and Eve were, were actually perfect. So husband and wife are called to serve one another, and the wife is called to be submissive and reverential to her husband, and he loves his wife as Christ loved the church and provides Christ-like servant leadership. They complement each other in the servant of Christ. That's in the home. In the church, it's my understanding that the Bible teaches two areas in which a woman's ministry is restricted. 
As far as I know, this is just personal now. It's not a church-wide band-aid. Rob and the elders handle that. It's my opinion there are two areas where she's restricted. She cannot hold the office of pastor or elder. In the Bible, the words, Greek words, presbyteros, presbyter, episkopos, episcopalian, overseer, and poema, pastor. Those words are used interchangeably. And so a woman cannot be in one of those offices. Number two, a woman is restricted from, for lack of a better way, of occupying the pulpit on Sunday morning. The church gathers together for theology, for doctrine, and for Christian living. And she is not the authoritarian to be preaching and teaching uh, the Word of God. So, when we, when we look at this passage of uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, it kind of summarizes my thoughts. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, it's interesting when the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul refer to what I'm talking about here right now. In every cases, they go back to creation. What does that say? If they're going back to creation, it completely nullifies any argument that this argument is made on a cultural difference today. Because he's going back to creation to establish uh, his argument. And he goes back far beyond the cultures began uh, changing their views on various things and, and the situations like that. Now, you may be working through this, or maybe this is brand new to you, uh, but I encourage you, if you have questions, talk to the spiritual leadership. They'll point you to some good readings on the matter, good biblical people. Let me just mention one person that, uh, that I was introduced by a book that Pastor Rob gave me uh, quite a few months ago. Uh, Claire Smith is a brilliant scholar. She's a PhD in New Testament, uh, lives in Australia, but she speaks all around uh, the world and is a prolific writer. In her book, God's Good Design, great book, she tells the story of an interview that she had with a uh, non-Christian TV reporter in Australia that knew about some of the controversy going on with women in the church and roles, etc. And she asked her why she believed that women ought not to be ordained as congregational leaders. Claire quoted these verses we just read, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 14 to her. The reporter wrote them down word for word. Then she read the words back to her to make sure she had every word correct. And she says, that's what it says? And Claire looked at her, thinking there'd be more questions. She says, yes, that's what it says. Claire replied, expecting some further questions, but she had no questions. And the reporter's response, notice the response. Even an unbeliever, her response was this. Well, what is the argument about then? I would have thought if that's what it says of the Bible, that settles it, doesn't it? And that night on the TV news, the verses were printed out on the screen so everyone could read them. The reporter thought it was pretty self-explanatory. She's right. They are. Now, here's a hermeneutical nugget for you. Hermeneutical means interpreting the scriptures. This is the only original thought I've had in 78 years. If the plain sense makes common sense, don't make it any other sense. That's pretty simple, isn't it? In other words, don't try to make a problem where there's no problem. It's like the reporter, that's what it says, that's what it says. What's the argument? Don't go into all this and all that. It's what it says. Take the word of God. Now we're going to close the message. Timing, two minutes. There's sacrificial expendability. Here we go. 
Romans 16.4, this is the last point there, sacrificial expendability. It says, Aquila and Priscilla, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, the immediate response uh, reference to this probably might have to do with the riot that Paul encountered in the city of Ephesus that you read about in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19.30 says, but when Paul wished to go in among the rioting crowd, the disciples would not let him. Some commentaries suggest that Quill and Priscilla were the ones making sure that Paul did not risk the, his life, but they risked their own life for Paul. Paul says, I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. In other words, I'm alive today because they put their necks uh, on the line for me. And notice he addressed both Aquila and Priscilla, not just the man. Aquila and Priscilla both said, we will die for the ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul. We love him so much. Willing to serve together, die together, and live for Christ. According to church history, Aquila and Priscilla laid down their lives for the Lord. July 8th is in the church calendar. It's set apart as the date of their martyrdom. They were beheaded just like Paul was for their faith in Christ. It's a touching end to a great story. One church historian wrote, if this is so, it is not difficult to fill in the details of the picture. Aquila and Priscilla had loved each other through the years and together had served the Lord so loyally. Now with eyes so full of unfading love as if to say to each other, farewell, fear not. They were ready for the flash of the blade that sent them home to God and to eternal fellowship with Christ, Paul, Apollos, and others to whom they had ministered. May the Lord give us couples, families, individual units to walk, knit together in love and unity, in marriage, in ministry, in work, in death. Yes, for all eternity. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you for these people that have given of their attention to the word of God. I pray that you would bless the word to their heart. For any who don't know Christ, speak to their heart, open their heart to your truth. For disciples, may we grow. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.